Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast where two licensed professional counselors and approved EMDR consultants discuss the latest research and resources for trauma treatment and EMDR therapy. Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Today we're here in the studio, uh, Jen and I are, with a very special guest. It's particularly special to me because this is one of my closest colleagues that I work with every day. Deborah Cox is with us, and she is a family psychologist here in Springfield, Missouri. She is an EMDR therapist and has been since, how long has it been? Since 2010. 2010, yeah, it's been a while. Um, she's also a writer and an artist. Um, I own several of her art pieces because <laughs> she's amazing, so highly recommend looking at her website so you can look at all of that too. Um, but today, in particular, she's here to talk with us about um, EMDR with performance enhancement. Yeah. Because this is kind of a specialty for you, something that you've done a lot of and know a lot about. So we wanted to invite you in to talk to us about that. So before we get into all of that, um, just tell us a little bit about how you came to EMDR and how you've integrated it into your practice, kind of your EMDR story, because we all have one. Yeah. Well, um, just EMDR in general, I knew about in the mid-90s, mid to late 90s, when I was getting supervised in Dallas, I was um, in my postdoc year, and my my mentor, Sally St. Clair, who's still in Dallas practicing, um, had been trained. She came in on the very front end. She got trained in the late 80s or early 90s, and she was doing it all the time, and she would mention it to me, and I would think, that sounds really kooky, but... But I respected her, um, and I, you know, I really thought of myself more as an academic at that point, so I wasn't all that interested. Um, but then after I went into um, private practice full-time, I started to feel like what I'm doing isn't enough. There needs to be something more for people who've been traumatized. And I guess I was just ready to receive the idea of it at that point, and it was probably um, 08, and Sally and I would talk about practice all the time. We stay in close contact. And um, she said, you know, you really ought to go get trained in EMDR. So I did in 2010, had really good trainers and um, hit the ground running. I just came back and started doing it right away. And people were responding uh, in amazing ways right away. So I knew that I had found this thing that I could really integrate into what I was already doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love how you said you were ready to receive it at yeah. that point. I think that's a great way of expressing that. I experienced something similar of just being curious but not, not certain. open to it. Yeah, just mm-hmm. how does this work? Mm-hmm. Even after getting trained for a little bit, still wondering, like, what's this really about? What is this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it goes against the grain of a lot of our training. It does. It does. Because it's um, protocol-based, and a lot of us were trained to be much more inductive Mm-hmm. than deductive mm-hmm. and much much more open to the flow of wherever the conversation might take us. Yeah, absolutely. So this is really different. Mm-hmm. And knowing you in the way that you tend to operate, going with the flow and being really open is kind of who you are by nature, <laughs> um, at least when working with people. So mm-hmm. I bet this was a big deviation for you in some ways. Yes, um, because it really incorporates that left hemisphere yeah. activity, which uh, we were just talking about a, an area of performance EMDR for myself 
involves really reincorporating that left brain and trusting it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a way, EMDR really helped me um, to not get so lost in the soup of things. Mm-hmm. To have That's a good way of saying it. You know, you have checkpoints. You mm-hmm. have things that you can stop and look at and write down. And, and measure. And measure. Yeah. To get regrounded or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's very orienting in the process. Yeah, and even when you're kind of lost in the weeds with a client, there's always a, a place to come back to. Right. Yeah. For me, that that would be the negative cognition. By the way, mm-hmm. that's w- where I always kind of go back and check on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, since completing your training, what has integrating it into your practice looked like, and getting to the place of performance enhancement? So. Um, yeah, where to start with that? It's such a journey, isn't it? Um, because EMDR morphs and changes the more we do it, mm-hmm. and we get more familiar, and we we integrate it more and more into who we are as a practitioner. Um, and I have to say that I adapt constantly. So I agree with Laurel Parnell in her encouragement to adapt, adapt, adapt. Mm-hmm. Um, I know some people are uncomfortable with that, but I find that for myself it's a constant adaptation and and realizing I'm still in the protocol even if I think boy we are what are we doing here this is so different I'm still in the protocol sometimes stepping back from bilateral stimulation and just having a conversation for a while I'm still in the protocol yes that's oh, I love of, to hear you cool. emphasize that yeah 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 hmm. so I think a lot of people fear they're veering off the protocol, but they may really not be. I feel like we could have a whole episode about that. Like the idea of staying within protocol, even when we're doing all the other things that we do mm-hmm. and still using that as a framework to kind of guide our whole process. Yes. Even if we have a whole session that is talking and more of the talk therapy. Yes. Still identifying where we are in that process. Mm. Yeah. I recently just (laughs) gave myself permission to feel that way about someone. In fact, this week, sat back, put the pulsers aside, put the magic wand aside, Mm -hmm. uh, and we just talked. And I was having that realization, we are still in the protocol. And next week, when I see you again, we'll pick right up, right here. I have a bookmark, and I'll say, where are you with this feeling of I'm not enough? And off we go. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's a really good insight. So when you think about using EMDR for performance, do you have some resources, some trainings that you went to or books that you really relied on to kind of get you going with that if, if people are listening and have an interest in doing that? Um, a couple of sources to start with. Um, I think David Grand was the originator of this idea of performance EMDR. So I like his works a lot, especially um, his book, Emotional Healing at Warp Speed. Um, he begins to talk about performance EMDR and creativity. Um, and those not, not necessarily being the same thing, but also really overlapping. Um, so that's a great introduction. And then if you have this big, heavy <laughs> uh, Marilyn Luber uh, EMDR scripted protocols, huge resource. There are chapters on performance EMDR in it, one in particular written by John Hartung. I hope I'm saying your name right, Mr. (laughs) Hartung. Um, But it has some wonderful things in it. And then 
I meant to scrounge up all the articles. I think I told you I was looking yeah, for a my lot of them. articles mm-hmm. um, because recently um, I was um, a co-researcher with David Hayes at Missouri State um, looking at performance EMDR apply to college string students. He teaches Hmm. violin at the college level. He's my son's teacher. And um, we were looking at doing performance EMDR. So he recruited a bunch of his students. And this is about a year ago. And I saw them. And we did the peak performance protocol um, that I kind of cobbled together from uh, um, Hartung and also David Grand and also some of these other writers who had done the same thing with like trumpet players mm. or um, voice students, a lot of voice. Um, we found a lot of that in the literature. We didn't find any specific studies that were looking at violin students, so we were filling a little hole there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I cobbled together bits from all of those and created a protocol for myself. Um, and I, I can tell you more about how that went. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and another book, just because they're, they're common ones that people may already have in their personal library, is the EMDR Solutions 2 by Robin Shapiro. Um, that has a whole section, and that is also mostly David Grand writing, and he goes through kind of the 15 main elements of um, performance EMDR. And so that's another good one to look at if you, if you already have it or want to get it. It's a great resource. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, can you go into to more detail about what does that look like, you know, when you kind of looked at all of the, the literature that was there and cobbled that together? What did you end up with? So what I ended up with was, um, and, and I guess let me back up to say that for anybody who thinks that this sounds different, performance EMDR sounds really different or, or hard or something, all EMDR is performance EMDR mm-hmm. because we're working with the goal of getting to that future templates place. We're all excited when we finally get to the place where we're having our clients imagine what to do when you encounter the situation again. Um, Because then you know you've really traveled a long way. And so then you're tapping in these positive resources at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, That's basically what it is. So it, it performance EMDR is a rearrangement of those basic elements mm. or a reallocation of time for those basic elements. And the way I would start it was um, by taking a very detailed history of um, what you want to do, what you want to do better, what you want to do differently, and why you want to do it differently. What's the why? behind wanting to perform this Bach concerto. Why Why does it mean so much to you? Um, the motivation piece. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, first of all, asking musicians these questions um, left me just in shivers. It was just amazing what they had to say about that. Um, and so I wrote it all down and um, uh, also asked them about their early performance experiences and their... Um, their early experiences with their teachers and their mentors and their family members. So I go ahead and do a genogram. I'm a family person, and so I ask about the family system and who's been most excited about your violin performance and who's been kind of not interested. Um, so I get a lot of history on paper and then begin to ask them about performances that went well. 
And there, of course, you get a lot of information about what doesn't go well. Hmm. Um, so I would, you know, write down the details of what went well and also note the details of what didn't go well. And then eventually, when we have all this information, I would um, ask them to do some visualization. And so here's where I start to, um, this is mostly David Grand, but other writers have talked about it as well, using two rooms. So you have a basic room, and I spend a lot of time here imagining this room, getting it just right, having it be comfortable with chairs and a screen. So you can have anything in this room you want, but it needs to be comfortable. It needs to have a place to sit down, even if it's outdoors, and you need to have a screen. And then in this room, you also have a companion who you trust, who's going to watch this screen with you. And um, so eventually, you know, you can already tell what we're going toward. We're, We're building up to you watching yourself and listening to yourself on stage doing this thing that you want to do. Are you having them watch a very specific performance that they are uh, planning for, preparing for, or is it kind of general? It's very specific. Okay. Yeah. It's like an experience from their past or an imagined circumstance. A future imagined circumstance. Okay. Yeah. So just like a future template. Just like a future template. Yeah. Um, there, there may be some differences in that. For instance, um, I'm going to tend to hand the pulsers over, and I'm going to say, you know, when we get to that point, you'll have them just going and going mm-hmm. and going mm-hmm. until they hit a snag, and then they turn off the pulsers. Mm. You actually give them control of the off-on switch. Mm-hmm. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've worked up to that. We've resourced We've resourced um, very positive teachers, very positive experiences. We've tapped those in. Mm-hmm. So they have already an idea of how mm-hmm. the EMDR is working. And they're very comfortable with it. Yeah. 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 Is there any past trauma work that's done leading up to this? Or is that something they don't have to dive into in order to experience the benefits? There is, uh, there is probably past trauma that's worked on, which opens up a whole other area because you don't know when your performer's coming in what they're bringing in in terms of past trauma. Right. Um, and you also don't know how open they are to working on that. You know that they want to play this piece of music better, more comfortably than mm-hmm. they have before. Um, and you also know that past trauma is the thing that interferes with that. Um, but the degree to which they want to focus on that is always a question. Right. So there are different ways to deal with that. This seems like a really neat approach for someone who's coming in with this presenting problem. They really want to focus on, but as you said, they're not ready for their trauma. Like they're mm-hmm. not ready to go into that. They're not willing. We can't yeah. force them to work on that. Right. Um, and if we did, right. it wouldn't be beneficial. Yeah. So it's an option to give them support and relief to maybe equip them to then feel more stabilized and going back to do that other work. Which they may want to do. Um, and another way to think about it is, I like to call it the sewing machine metaphor. And I don't know if you guys like to sew. I don't like to sew, but I do occasionally so <laughs> have you ever threaded a sewing machine needle uh, mm-hmm. yes it's mm-hmm. very frustrating <laughs> it's very frustrating and then 
Do you know the next step where you're getting your threaded needle to connect with the bobbin thread? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you might be turning the little crank, Mm -hmm. and then the needle dips down into that You're crossing your fingers and hoping that it's going to catch? Yeah. 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 Well, then magically it does. Uh It does catch. And then you have these two threads working together. I like to think of that... Um, as happening along with this performance uh, mm. resourcing that we're doing. Okay. Because sometimes resourcing, <laughs> there are going to be some people that get mad at me for saying this, but it's Oh, I know what you're going to say. Do you know what I'm going to say? I do know what you're going to say. Go ahead and say it. Sometimes resourcing is all you need. <laughs> yeah, there will be some people mad at you about that. That's, That's okay. okay. <laughs> it's neat to get other perspectives. Uh-huh. Yeah, well... I know. One of my first trainers who I just really respect so much said, it's not enough. It's not enough. It's not Mm -hmm. enough. I agree with him in a way because if we weren't working with that bobbin thread at the same time, it wouldn't be enough. Right. But because it's all connected, Mm -hmm. sometimes you catch that wonderful underneath thread and you don't ever really have to talk about it. Mm -hmm. But you're resourcing something completely different. And it's carrying that trauma thread along with it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I I really think that there is significant legitimacy to that because it's the way that humans heal from trauma without EMDR. Yes. And we don't all get EMDR. Yeah. And I haven't done EMDR on every single trauma. And yet I would consider it healed. I have no distress when I think about it. Yeah. And if we look at the EMDR model and understand AIP and all of that, if the adaptive side is strong enough, is robust enough, it is the thing that will cause us to spontaneously heal from trauma, whether we ever do EMDR on it or not. And so to me, if we are, you know, building up the the adaptive side, which is what you're talking about, there is a chance, not a guarantee, but there's a chance that it will reach over and grab the trauma and it'll get processed naturally. Naturally. Yeah. So I have definitely experienced that personally. I know that I've watched clients experience that or at least in, in a portion, right? So Maybe if we had just gone for the trauma initially, distress would have been at a eight, mm-hmm. right? But if we do all of this adaptive work, then we come back and it's a four. Exactly. And it's so yeah. much easier to process out. Yeah. So, yeah. I can tell a story about that, actually. Yeah. Love to hear it. So one of my violin students that I was working with um, had, had a teacher in his um, undergraduate who had been really hard on him. Great teacher, but so so hard on him Mm. so that he never got it right he never got it to be good enough and he was in in telling the story I mean he was even tearful in remembering it Um, so we touched on it and um, we didn't do much with it I remember thinking oh dear I've skipped something important because before I knew it we were in his future performance he sort of went there spontaneously Mm -hmm. And so I handed him the pulsers. He he had the two rooms. I think I mentioned a moment ago, mm-hmm. two rooms. One is that basic room where you've got the screen. The other room is off-site, and it's full of friends hmm. and people that you um, love and trust, but they're not maybe at the level of companion. So you have people rooting for you in that other room that maybe is across town, 
and they are available if you need to call upon them. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had all of that set up. He had all his friends there waiting to get a call if they were needed. And he was watching the screen with his partner, I think. And um, his performance went on and on and on. It was like, oh, we're 20 minutes into this. Oh, wow. And the pulsars are still going. And I'm like, oh, I hope I didn't mess up and you know, leave this teacher experience Mm -hmm. exposed here. Mm -hmm. Well, so he has a perfectly successful run of this performance. And then we come back later on and I'm checking out these spots and there's no apparent distress. Mm -hmm. He says, um, you know, I understand him. He's seeing what I can do and he's wanting to push me to be all that I can be. Yeah. It's just chilling mm-hmm. to think so that he's adaptive. rolled right over that. We didn't need to go back and talk about it. Mm-hmm. No specific moments. Mm-hmm. It processed. That's the kind of spontaneous insight that you would get if you had targeted it specifically. Right. But his brain did that on its own. Mm-hmm. There's some overlap there with the flash technique and things like that. And I, I agree. I, I feel like, yeah, I feel like as our research develops, um, by no means are we letting go of the basic protocol as the absolute backbone of everything we do. But I think kind of expanding our understanding of just how um, willing the brain is to heal and try to process things. And there's many different um, approaches that we can take to try to assist with that. And especially when we have those clients that the the more direct approach just is not a good choice mm-hmm. to know that we have other options that really help them process. It's not just a band-aid. It's not, you know, waiting until we can do the real thing. It's really going to make a difference for them. Mm-hmm. And every brain is so different and every personality is so different that to think that every person is going to process in the same mm-hmm. way is really just um, maybe a little crazy. Like we've got to have right. creativity and adaptations that reach each person uniquely. That's so true. I think the fear that a lot of people have with the whole resourcing, um, sometimes all we need is that as therapists for our own performance anxiety, we stay hidden in that. Mm. Like yeah. that's our safe that's place. That's a really good point, Jen. Um, uh-huh. Because it's it's scary to go over into the trauma reprocessing. What if I mess this up? What if I don't know what to do? And so a lot of therapists, we just kind of want to stay in resourcing because it's happy and they feel oh. good. The warm fuzzies are there. Yeah. And so I think it's about, wow. you know, having the knowledge and the confidence to do both, but being able to recognize when the resourcing can do some of that work can carry that but yet you could move into the trauma reprocessing if you need to that's so interesting because this morning i was thinking about how hard it is for me sometimes to just stay in resourcing Mm. and how sometimes i feel like um if we're not talking about the problem we don't have any footing or any real Mm -hmm. um you know i don't have um, traction or something Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so for me making the switch over into the beauty and the splendor and the happiness uh, and just milking that for all it's worth, Mm -hmm. that takes a little bit of Mm -hmm. of extra calm and presence Mm -hmm. to be able to do. Mm -hmm. And some self-talk as a therapist that this is legitimate and as important. They don't have to be crying (laughs) for it to work. Oh, gosh, yeah. They could be smiling. (laughs) Yes, in fact, I'm thinking about um, some work I did with an artist recently who had been away from her art 
she'd just been working her job, you know. And um, I got out the paints, and um, she was painting, and, and we would tap in the feelings of being there with hmm. the paints, with the colors, just noticing how orange mixes with yellow and becomes a little brighter, just tapping in those very, very basic things. Mm. And I had this little thought in the back of my head, you're not doing your job. Mm. (laughs) This isn't serious enough. But she texted me later and said, that was great. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. I was just happy. Man, that voice, I am familiar with that. (laughs) With kids specifically, you know, we're just playing and maybe tapping in, maybe not. Mm-hmm. And it, I'm like, I'm wasting their money. Like, this is, what am I doing, doing here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. then it's, you see it evolve and you're like, oh, like just smiling at them and, and praising them yeah. for all their wonderful things. And then using bilateral as they're playing, just mm-hmm. these soft taps on their shoulders mm-hmm. really is doing good work. But Do you remember whenever you took family back in the day, um, talking about Insu Kimberg? and her um, more solution-focused mm-hmm. approach mm-hmm. to families, she would ask what was called the miracle question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You remember that? Yeah. And it would be like, okay, suppose you go to bed tonight, and in your sleep, while nobody's watching, a miracle occurs, and you wake up in the morning, and this problem that you had before is just simply gone. And what's the first thing you notice? And then what do you notice after that? That, to me, was a beginning framework for doing performance EMDR Hmm. and even positive resourcing Mm -hmm. in a way Mm because if you can imagine that you start to feel that yeah you get those chill bumps and you get that surge of adrenaline Mm -hmm. that feeling of energy in your body Mm -hmm. and then you can just tap that right in Deborah can you talk about because I know the way you work and I know what a huge part of um, your work the body is sensation and you know really teaching your clients to connect you know as i'm listening to you talk about feel the way it feels when orange connects with yellow i'm like oh my gosh i would never say something like that (laughs) but it's so beautiful because you know this is how an artist does emdr right um and that you know that is just a testament to we bring our personality we bring all of our own strengths to our clients and it can turn into such a a beautiful thing. Um, But can you talk for a minute about the way that you kind of constantly intermingle work with the body and sensation into performance EMDR? Because I know that is a huge piece of that puzzle. It really, really is. Um, And referencing David Hayes for a minute, my colleague at Missouri State, um, he had a questionnaire that he developed for these students in particular um, where he wanted to know before and after how how calm they felt mm. and how much in control they felt. So he wanted them to feel both of mm. those things. You know, sometimes we forget about the control piece. It's nice to be calm, but you could be too calm. Mm-hmm. And so there is an optimal state of mm-hmm. arousal <laughs> that you want to feel. Um, and boy, this... This area gives me millions of thoughts about conversations we've had mm-hmm. about, you know, being in a therapy week and feeling too, what, groggy, mm-hmm. too... Uh, under the window. Under the window. <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. And so then I'll reference you because um, a long time ago you told me 
that periodically you would just check in about the body. Mm -hmm. Just go there, Mm -hmm. even if you weren't in that order. Right. What are you feeling in your body right now? Mm -hmm. So I adopted that. Like, I know we were just talking about (laughs) the sound or whatever, but what's your body feeling right now? I'll just go there and just ask. Mm -hmm. Because then it, it is in the consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really, I have found that to be, I think the way that you use negative cognition kind of is that, that spot that you always go back to. For me, it's a body um, because of the kind of clients that I work with and things like that. I think it's just been a really reliable way. And the language that I always use for them is, can we just let your body marinate in that feeling for a second whenever we're doing future template and things like that? And almost without fail the the response the physiological response when they really connect is a feeling of in control of calm and in control and that's what made me think of this is there is sort of that optimal state of i am peaceful but i'm awake i'm really awake to this moment to what's happening Um, And when you're doing something performative, whether it's public speaking or singing or whatever, you need to be really awake. Like that, that's a, and you're going to have that feeling of adrenaline and calm, but with adrenaline is just a really magical feeling Mm -hmm. that feels so good. And so I think if we can have people experience that, you know, lovely combination when we're future Mm -hmm. templating with them, it's so much easier for them to get back there when they need it and recognize it when they're experiencing it. Uh-huh. And I think just the us demonstrating the power of mindfulness mm-hmm. in that too, of checking in with those parts and that the power of that outside of a therapy session too, to mm-hmm. ask yourself, what do I feel in my body right now? Mm-hmm. Where does that come up for me? Yeah. And so I think us as therapists kind of modeling that as being significant sends a strong message to our clients too. I think it does. After getting trained in Reiki this past summer, I'm much more aware of that than ever before. And I can feel when, when I'm in that wonderful window, um, there is a, a deep calm, but there's also energy. I feel it in my legs. Mm-hmm. I feel it running up from the ground and just kind of running up my whole body, enlivening what I'm doing and I can think about that and and get myself there mm-hmm. more and more like have you ever had a, a favorite cologne or maybe you know a favorite smell I'm thinking of Jovan Muscoel <laughs> from the early 80s late 70s so this boy that I liked very much wore Jovan Muscoel for men and to this day, I mean, if I catch a whiff of that at Walgreens or whatever, <laughs> I am back there uh-huh. thinking about Scott. <laughs> same, same deal. Same uh-huh. deal. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's those shortcuts through the body. It's mm-hmm. so powerful. It's true. Mm-hmm. Well, so any other thoughts about um, kind of the, the main elements of helping people with performance? And I'm also interested in hearing, you know, what's kind of the spectrum of performance-related things that you've worked on? Because I think that's probably a lot broader than we tend to think of immediately. You know, we think of things like musicians or public speaking, but what are other things that you've done? Oh, right. Well, lately, um, I'm packaging this for therapists, because what I want to mm. see people doing is building practice, wherever that is, if it's private practice or with, with an agency or um, in any setting, building it from an aesthetic place. So thinking of yourself 
as an artist, a dancer, as you're doing this work. Mm-hmm. Because it really, really is an art form that relies on both hemispheres. It's true. Absolutely. So, so having, uh, yeah, having therapists do the same performance process um, on different elements of their practice, like um, your beautiful space, mm. which is where, where I am putting a lot of emphasis right now, the space that you want to be in doing this wonderful work and how that informs you um, mentally and physically and spiritually to do mm-hmm. the work that you were meant to do in this world. Right. So the impact it has on clients is actually secondary to the way that it nurtures you as a therapist. But very much there. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. It comes out of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sort of like you have to have it before you can pass it along. Right. Right. I feel like that alone in a agency world would help decrease burnout. Like mm-hmm. if yes. agencies adopted this kind of package you're talking about is mm-hmm. those who have therapists or social workers or, you know, those um, helping fields that really are taxing on us mm-hmm. to have that be a focus would be so beneficial to them yes. to decrease burnout. I mean, for me, Beethoven makes life worth living. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I am totally serious about that. And I, so mapping, mapping my situation onto what I think other people might need for you, you know, it might not be Beethoven. It might be, um, modern jazz fusion or Mm -hmm. for me, it's plants, plants. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, but really being able to bring that into your sense of yourself as a performer of this art. That is EMDR. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's exciting stuff. Really it's exciting. Uh-huh. So what type of clients do you see in your practice doing this? You said you're kind of focusing on other therapists now. Mm-hmm. Is that primarily, I know that's a strong word, but is that a lot of what you're focusing on? Do you see other clients with other type of performance? Yes. Um, in fact, I've come to see almost everybody in this light. Um, but uh, to be more specific, um there are a range of students that I tend to work with, undergraduates, um, high school students, and also graduate students um, who have hit a wall, so to speak, and are needing to get beyond that point, um, needing to finish the dissertation, hmm. um, needing to you know, just get through the last six weeks of school, um, just sort of you know, drawing on all the energy reserves to take those tests. So test anxiety would be a, a presenting issue. Um, orals, oral exams would be a presenting issue. Any kind of a- a academic or educational performance issue. Um, sometimes, though, it'll be a conversation that I need to have with my ex-husband, for instance. Hmm. Th- this was one um, that I had recently. I need to have this conversation. I know I'm strong enough to do it. But I am remembering all the things that happened in our relationship mm-hmm. that kept me from having a voice. So mm-hmm. retraining the voice, you know, retraining this. This is a kind of performance. I'm going to step so into this room and I'm going to say the things that need to be said so we can co-parent. You know, as you're talking, I feel like I'm having this personal epiphany with my 14-year-old daughter. As you said, high school, she's in middle school, but just... I think at that age, almost every day socially is a performance. Mm, that's really oh. true. You know, walking into school yeah. and I've, 
got to look a certain way and present a certain way and be a certain way for people to like me and to fit in and to feel okay. And so just hearing you talk about that just brought that up, that it's it's less of a a protocol and more of a lens in which you see in which you see people. Yes, exactly. A a lens. And then to back it up, to to make it more specific, what is the language that even she is using to describe her day? And are there any words that are presenting barriers, hot words? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hartung talks about hot words versus words that facilitate me. So, you know, maybe um, ugly is in my vocabulary mm-hmm. about myself awkward i hear awkward. a lot of clients Around use that, that word. Age, awkward absolutely. yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Mm-hmm. i'm so awkward mm-hmm. creepy so awkward. creepy oh <laughs> yeah i do i hear that one too mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. those would be hot words and so we would want to maybe question those and can we replace them with a word that's going to facilitate and help smooth out that part of my day it's hmm. a really good point and i'm thinking of parenting as performance Heck, because there's yeah. elements of that <laughs> Goodness, I relate to that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, disciplining our kids as performance mm-hmm. and stepping into that role. No. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, okay, so this is just kind of expanding and blowing up my definition yeah, of like performance. Yeah, I uh-huh. fireworks going uh, off right now. Good. <laughs> just as a, a very quick and short testimony and also an idea of another expand, expansion on using MDR for performance, um, you know, one of the, the rules that a lot of us follow is that if somebody is pregnant, that we don't do trauma processing, we don't do a lot of EMDR. However, at some point, I came across the idea of if you have a pregnant client doing future templating on birth. Yes. And birth is performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so luckily, I ran across that when I was pregnant <laughs> and did a lot of performance EMDR on myself. Um, and it worked like a dream. I had the best birth experience. It was very, very, um, I don't know, convincing to me to experience EMDR that way because I had done a ton of EMDR for trauma related stuff and all of that, but to feel it work on, um, something that I had not yet experienced and feel my brain be able to make these templates for something that I had never done and then when I'm actually in that situation to feel them turn on and work it felt like magic so so if you guys have pregnant clients and you know (laughs) rightfully so we kind of pause our usual um, processing with them because that's the right thing to do this is an area that we can pick up and do that is going to be hugely helpful because birth um, is very very traumatic for a lot of women for many, many different reasons, whether they're choosing the natural version, um, the hospital version, doesn't matter. There are elements to that experience that can be very, very hard on them and traumatizing. And so I highly recommend it if you have any pregnant clients whatsoever, that uh, mm-hmm. it's a good it's a good choice. So. Yeah, oh, I'm so glad you mentioned pregnancy mm-hmm. because Sally St. Clair works with a lot of pregnant women mm-hmm. and a lot of women who've had um, previous traumatic pregnancies. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, she would say that if a woman is uh, about to deliver <clears throat> and is frightened that you go ahead and and you know hand her the pulsers and mm-hmm. let her be in charge yes. and just let her process it out in her own nonverbal way perhaps mm-hmm. you don't don't even worry about you know identifying things just mm-hmm. let her have that bilateral stimulation and she'll probably naturally go where she needs to go mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one one of the, um, I don't remember who it was that I was reading. I wish I could remember. But they talked about using the same strategy that Olympic athletes use in their training because 
birth is an Olympic event. I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> very athletic. <laughs> it really is. Um, but a lot of uh, athletes use music as a very big part of that and yeah. use it as a, a templating strategy. Um, so that's one of the really cool things that we can do with performance EMDR as well is pairing music to help people enter into that. Yes. Um, and, you know, birth is one of those performances that music can be a big part of that. Yeah. And uh, so that, that was, I don't know, what really kind of connected all the dots for me and made it a really lovely experience actually so I love that you mentioned bringing music into yes. it yes yeah it's really helpful okay so any final questions do you have any advice for new EMDR therapists mm, just kind question. of with this um, aspect of it we speak a lot to just therapists who have just been trained mm-hmm. <clears throat> well the first thing that comes to mind is that if you can allow yourself the freedom to think of all EMDR in a way as performance EMDR, what that may allow you to do is to notice all the positive sides of the thing that you're being presented with, which I think can help with burnout. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes it strikes me, I'll be honest, I'll be sitting in a session and and I'll be thinking, I've heard a lot of bad stories today. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that good for me? (laughs) And and that's a sign that, no, I've heard too many bad stories mm-hmm. today. <clears throat> and what I'm really needing is to look at the other side of things, which sounds terrible. That sounds so Pollyanna-ish or something to my ears. I don't want to be repressing or denying what's there. But I feel, my body feels, there's another way to look at this. And so there's always that question out there of how would you rather think? In fact, when we set up, our beginning stages of processing, we're asking Mm -hmm. the question, how would you rather feel about yourself? How would you rather believe about yourself? In a way, that's a seed Mm -hmm. for performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and you can hover there. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's good for us as therapists. It's certainly good for our clients. Mm. Okay, that's a really good point. I like that. Okay, where can any of our listeners find you themselves or to refer clients? Yeah, so um, I'm at Beyond Studio, which um, Melissa and I share this wonderful gallery space and art space. Um, We are downtown in Springfield on South Street and um, wander in anytime because we always have art up on the walls and we love for people to come by. If the doors are all shut, that just means we're all doing therapy. Um, (laughs) But we'd love to see you on first Friday for Art Walk. Um, so, so that's one way to find us, me, and um, also my website, www.debralcox.com, and I have a number of resources there in my blog about performance and creativity. Okay, good. And so is that open to anyone to reach out for questions regarding this type of work yeah. or your practice with that as well as referrals? Yes. Okay. There's a way to contact me through email, and I'm pretty good about getting back within the week for sure. Okay. Yeah. Good. Thank well, you. Thank so you so much. much. Yeah. This thank has been you. Fantastic. It's been so fun. Mm-hmm. Thanks. And we'll probably have you on again to talk about other things because you are a wealth of EMDR wisdom. So. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today, and we will be back soon with another episode. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. We hope something you've heard today will help you help your clients. 
find our latest episode and more on our Facebook page or on our website, emdr-podcast.com. And don't forget to add us to your RSS feed or follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher so that you don't miss an episode. Please email questions and comments to noticethat at emdr-podcast.com. From all of us here at Notice That, see you next time. Thank you.